click next to continue. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Click Next to Continue. Today we're going to try something a little bit different and uh, this might end up being a little bit uh, rougher uh, than, than mm. even normal, Raph. Uh, <laughs> Today, yep. we're going to be going through uh, a list of things that we think could be done in the field of learning and development to uh, improve, improve the way we work, improve the way we're perceived, uh, and just help us get better outcomes for mm. the audiences that we're dealing with. So uh, I just want to start off by saying that all this comes from passion. So we probably are going to get a little bit ranty here or passionate about it. We're not trying to be overly critical or negative here. It's, it's really just comes from a place of, of love and, and caring about what we do. Yeah, a little bit of tough love uh, for, I think, both ourselves in some cases, because we've reflected on some of these things and gone, hmm, yeah, this is definitely an area for us to improve. But, uh, hmm. you know, just just being raw and, and, and truthful um, and, you know, hopefully yeah. some people kind of go, actually, this is, this is a really good point and I can change what I do. And some things are going to be sort of quick wins, just awareness, and other things are going to be, this is a habit I need to change. So, yeah, well, very excited. Speaking of, uh, let me let me hit my first one. Ooh, okay. uh, first one. First one for me is actually around uh, habits and behavior. So as a field, focusing more on behavioral change and building habits. And okay. For, for me, I think there's there's still a lot that we can be doing about thinking about um, the different ways that we can affect people's behaviors in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of bring this back to the, you know, the term training. When we think of the term training outside of work, you know, we think about sports training, martial arts training, you know, we're thinking about being really practical and do learning by doing and and also kind of practicing the basics over and over again and building mm-hmm. really good behaviors and, and habits around something. So not to be kind of derogatory or anything, but if you're dog training, you know, you're thinking about training the behaviors of that dog. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not saying we hand out kind of delicious treats to everyone and kind of brainwash uh-huh. them and, and I'm all about create delicious treats, responses. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but, but what I am I'm saying is, you know, when we get to back to words like training, um, there is a behavioral component there that we need to really understand. And yep. there's a lot that we can learn from marketing, you know, behavioral economics um, about really uh, getting some of these results, not just through throwing a lot of information at someone. Mm-hmm. And I've deliberately thrown in the word habit there too, because habits are, is a word that I really like to use um, when I'm speaking to, to learning and development managers and, and clients, because habit does denote something that's repeatable, you know, and it's something that you do automatically without having a manager stand over your shoulder. And if you think about a lot of the different learning initiatives that, that you might be involved with or being part of, um, you know, you think about compliance, safety, you know, sexual harassment, bullying. Well, of course, mm-hmm. you want to develop really good repeatable behaviors there. You want people to have habits around treating people well. You want people to have the habits of wearing the right protective gear at the right time and following the right safety procedures without having to be, you know, told to do so by their managers or a health and safety yep. rep. If it's, yep. you know, if it's around um, cybersecurity, you want people to always be aware of the different threats that are out there and always be on the lookout and always be vigilant instead of just kind of the first day after training. You want to build those. And I like using that word habit because then you can start talking about things that are stretched over a period of time, like a campaign around learning rather than just being focused on 
one training event and expecting that to you know build in the right skills knowledge and behaviors of someone mm-hmm. i think and that also touches on the fact um you know as, as you were talking through that and in particular cyber safety type training where if there's a learning initiative around you know cyber safety so maybe it's um you know say an e-learning people are already switched on to that so they may exhibit the correct behavior because mm. they're in an environment where they're anticipating they're supposed to. But we want that to transfer into a habit that every day people have this habit of having that critical eye over emails and not getting caught out. So uh, I, I like how you sort of differentiated there. And, you know, the, the focus is ultimately habits because we don't want it to be a one-time thing and then high five and, you know, assume everything's great. We need this to be observable from that point beyond and, and you know mm-hmm. um, not be something that people have to be having a manager over their shoulder going hey have you done this so I really like that one yeah what's 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 your one so for me uh, directly deriving from that I want us to better define the behavioral current state and future state and what I mean by that is you know we very often end up in a position where we go great so here's everything we want people to do and here's information that'll help them do that and what we miss out on is being able to ask the question of, okay, so here's a future state behavior. Why is it not happening today? Because that's going to be really, really important in shaping how it's addressed. If you're rolling out a completely new process that no one's ever done before, then obviously, you know, that's going to have components of one, awareness, and then two, knowledge. Hey, here's the steps in the process you need to follow. And then again, having some kind of framework there after the initial learning event to embed that framework and form the habit. But if something is, hey, the information's already there and people know they should be doing it and the behavior's still not being exhibited the way it should, you need to know that. One, because it may be something you can't actually influence for a learning initiative. It could be um, a process that is very painful for people to do and they're just not motivated enough to um, take on that pain. And at the same time, it could be, um, sorry, I'm just going to phone. Would it, would it good behavior to be turning turning off our phones during podcast recording? Yeah, you would think when you put it on silent, it um, it suggests that it's on silent. But but I, but I like what uh, I like what you're saying there. You know, if if you don't know the current state and the future state how do you work out where the gap is? And and that's really mm. what a, a lot of our job is, is that gap analysis. You know, yes, what's yes. the discrepancy here in the performance and how do we close that gap? And like you said, you know, is is the process they're going through just a really bad process? Does that process need a change? Mm-hmm. You know, other things that are really important are, are people getting feedback on what they're doing, you know, mm, either yes. through the quality of their work being very visible to them and having the ability to kind of reflect on it um, or, or are people providing feedback to them about it as well. That's exactly right. And I think, you know, the, the other one is just having environmental factors. Um, there's, there's you know, a process being painful but achievable, but in some cases the, the a behavior may not be being exhibited or a habit is not forming because what we want people to do, there are barriers in their way. Um, an example could be that we want people to better set up their desk. So, you know, the right height of the desk and the chairs and all that. But you discover that 50% of your audience has desks that are fixed. So whilst it's all fine and dandy to say, hey, we want the behavior to be to set up the right level of desk, these people can't do it. And that's where you start to understand, okay, well, how do we approach this and how do we get the outcome for all parties in the audience? 
but at the same time, asking the behavioural world, why isn't happening now, will potentially identify a, we're not sure, we don't know from the stakeholders, which again needs a plan. You can't move into designing a solution or thinking about designing a solution if you've got gaps of understanding around why it's not currently happening. And then you just need to find a way of filling that gap before you even start moving ahead. So uh, very, very important to understand that. Yeah, I agree. My my next one is um, about valuing experts and valuing expertise, Mm -hmm. knowing the real true value of that. And as a field, I think we, you know, where our jobs are dedicated towards creating experts, teaching people how to do things that are brand new to them, helping them get better at it and leading them towards mastery. You know, it's all about education and training and learning. And yet the way we operate in general um, doesn't really respect expertise. Mm-hmm. And where I see that happen, in, in a, here's a couple of examples is, you know, let's use e-learning as a really good example. Mm-hmm. It's a lot of generalist e-learning practitioners out there who do everything and kind of like a jack of all trades. Mm-hmm. And you compare that to a team of specialists, a team of experts, you know, you've got an expert graphic designer, you've got an expert writer, you've got an expert instructional designer who's really good at doing some of those things that you mentioned around the current state and the future state and the gap and working out are there any other factors determining if training is a solution you've got a, a, an expert developer if, if you have a team of those experts they're going to do a better job than someone who does a little bit of everything yeah and you know i'm interested in in every aspect of, of that sort of thing the technical the creative the you know the instructional design part of it the writing part of it that's all very interesting, but I'm not the world's best graphic designer. And if I'm creating a piece of e-learning, I'll focus on the instructional design and get someone else to develop it, someone else to design it as well. And I think we need to be doing that a lot more. Mm-hmm. And all another example is seeing it in kind of the the decisions around, you know, either buying services or products. Uh, you know, I've been in a lot of those conversations where the it's it's not, there's not many questions asked around kind of process. Like mm. what's, what's the process you go through? What, what's your expertise? It's more about how many awards have you won and how much is it? And mm. I think that is really doing the, the audience a disservice mm-hmm. because here's, here's a, a harsh truth out there. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not hard to win an award. <laughs> Pretty much any company out there has won an award of some kind and, and it's seriously not very hard to win an award. And price it should you know obviously there are limitations around budget there mm-hmm. but in, more often than not you are going to get what the, the quality that you pay for as well mm. so there's that and then i think just from a professional development point of view as well we need to constantly be pushing ourselves to become more and more experts in things mm-hmm. and we need if we're if we're dabbling a little bit in video we should be looking at how do we get better at that and not just accepting the quality that you were putting out, you know, a, a year ago too. Yeah, I think the other the other thing that plays into it, being an expert is not about having all the answers. It's about knowing your strengths and knowing your weaknesses. And to your point, knowing when you need to bring in additional expertise um, and, you know, being able to sort of say, hey, you know, this is good enough because this is a, the realm of my capability, not, I guess, being the defining uh, benchmark of quality. Um, which neatly brings me to my uh, next point, which is benchmarking deliverable quality outside of L&D. Um, and I was, I was about to step on your toes with this one, just oh, like oh, I'm interrupting oh. you now. <laughs> um, 
But with my example around the video, I was, I was always going to say, you know, you might come up with a, with a video that looks really, really great or an animation looks really, really great. But if you compare that to something outside of the learning and development field and compare it to a real expert, mm-hmm. a real filmmaker, a really great YouTube person, then you're going to see that, you know, you, you, you're a few levels behind them and that's going to help you uh, kind of aspire to reach that. So mm-hmm. sorry to step on your toes, Raph, no, uh, that's, you know, that's which I fine. ended up doing anyway, but mm-hmm. over to you. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, there's, there's, there's that perception of quality both in terms of the polish, but also the flip side of it. Um, if we look at, I guess, let's say movies as you know, they're, they're the benchmark of, of quality. But a movie can have all the special effects, be super polished, great, I guess, cinematography. But if the storyline and the character development is bad, it's still a bad movie. So understanding that that quality benchmark is across all areas of it, um, that you can't all of a sudden focus on, well, you know, this e-learning is super well designed and from a visual perspective and expect that that's going to lift bad learning design. And on the flip side, you can't expect that a learning design is going to be fantastic if the deliverable doesn't look as polished as people expect it. And Mm. people expect relatively high polish these days because in amongst their day, they're probably on YouTube, they're on their phone, they're consuming other media types which are very polished and we can't have our learning outputs obviously be of a lower quality. And I guess the key thing is quality, not overall production because the the goal isn't here, hey, you know, try and create a, a movie, you know, that Spielberg would be proud of. It's about going, what can I do? What's in with the capabilities? And maybe setting the stretch of what you want to do, setting that bar a little bit lower, but doing it really well. So if all you can do is something that uses photography and text, do that exceptionally well, rather than pushing to, you know, having some terrible looking animations or something like that. If, if you are creating a job aid uh, to take someone through a process, mm-hmm. compare that to the job aid you get with, uh, you know, your Google Home, yes. you get the setup instructions or your iPhone instructions or, you know, your new TV or compare that to really well-designed instructional, you know, manuals and, you know, short little quick start guides. Compare that and don't just compare how it looks, yes. um, which, which is important, but compare how easy it is to follow, how little, you know, how small it is, how simple it is, the, the amount of words that it's using, the really great visual communication in the diagrams. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of stuff that you should be aspiring to. And e-learning, once again, is another really great, easy, simple one. You shouldn't be comparing your e-learning that you made to a really crappy click next old school piece of uh, e-learning made in Captivate years ago. You should, yeah, (laughs) you should be comparing it to a really great app. You should be comparing it to a really great website. Uh, Mm. That's going to help you realize that there are, once again, levels to this. You have further along to go in terms of expertise. There's a lot you can learn by, by looking at this sort of stuff, but it's going to help you keep pushing yourself to get better and better. And the benchmark should definitely not be what everyone else is doing in this particular industry. Mm-hmm. It should be what's the high watermark here for anything in, in that space, be it print material or digital material. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, to, to the point you made around, you know, uh, what, you know, looking at instructions that Google puts out, learn from them beyond what you're focused on. So they have to cater for an enormous audience um, with varying levels of comprehension and reading ability, and they, they mm. get it done. And look at it both in terms of, hey, look how simplistic language there is, how direct it is, it's clean in design. 
and really understand why when you look at it and read through it, what makes it good and then take that and apply it to what you're creating and as much as you can. Like there'll be a lot you can just adopt in terms of, you know, using language, layouts and that side of things. It's quite easy and, and your learners will thank you for it because, again, they are going to be comparing it to, well, I just, you know, set up my new phone and that experience was super intuitive and smooth. Now I'm using this application, which particularly isn't exciting or complex and the manual is 20 pages long and boring and I'm struggling to follow it. Yeah. My next one is about measuring results. Oh, yes. Good this one. doesn't necessarily have to be getting into really complicated ROI calculations here. It's just have a goal and measure against that in some way. Mm -hmm. And it's not that hard. I really don't think so. I think it's easier if you're, if you're working internally because you're, you're there and you can follow things up, you know, three months, six months, 12 months, two years down the track. But have a goal for something. You mentioned ergonomics. You yes. know, something we've done with ergonomics in the past is having a look at the amount of injuries or assessments that need to go out and get done and, and look about, you know, our goal is about reducing those over time. And those are stats that are collected anyway. And we're able to go back three months later, six months later, a year later, and have a look at how they change. Mm -hmm. And if they don't change at all, then we we know that the, the training uh, was was ineffective. There could be other variables and other factors there, mm -hmm. um, but that definitely kind of points us in in the right direction. It knows that we need to do something else, or what we've done hasn't quite worked. Uh, and then if it has improved, you know, once again, you need to consider there's other factors in, involved here. But at least it's kind of it's giving you some data to start working with. Yes. And any project, you should be starting off by identifying what the problem is determining what a solution is and what the goals are and then being able to measure against that. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit harder if you're a, you know, if you're a vendor, I hate that term, by the way. Um, if you, you know, if you're an outside external party and you're coming in and doing something, uh, I know from experience, as much as, you know, you offer it for free, say, we'll come back. It's going to give you all this valuable data. When you get, try and come back six months later, everyone's too busy or they've moved on to something else. I get that. But this is why I'm saying it. You know, if, if you are hiring someone and paying them a lot of money to develop something, you should be demanding that they set some goals in, in agreement with you. Mm -hmm. So you, then you can both measure it and work out if it's worth working with them again. Yeah. It, you should be kind of holding them to task. And I really, if I'm working with anyone, I really want them to kind of make make me and my team accountable mm -hmm. for anything that we're doing. And if we come back, you know, a year later and they say, this 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 thing that we spent money on has not done anything for us apart from make people sit through some training then you know i can't be offended if they don't want to work with me again well that's it the other part of that is measure those results and i guess have a plan on how to react because obviously you know a lot of a lot of focus is how do we gauge success and here's the benchmark and then there seems to be a gap going one step further of, okay, well, what happens if we don't achieve success? So mm -hmm. being able to measure the results and then be able to look at it, okay, well, we haven't quite achieved what we want. What needs to change? Um, because again, point of this, I guess, podcast is things are forever changing and we need to keep adapting. The same goes for any learning initiative you create. When it goes out there, that's when you find out how effective it's been. And that's when you can learn more about your audience, more about the challenge, more about the most appropriate ways of tackling it and adapt. So it's constantly progressing and achieving a better and better outcome into the future, not being a static, yeah, it worked or a, oh, no, it didn't. Um, and it either goes in the bin or it just stays there for another couple of years. 
And if you don't have something to measure yourself against, and how, how do you know what you need to improve? Absolutely, yes, yes. Well? So you're, you're denying yourself the opportunity to get better at your craft and become more of an expert as well. You know, if you don't have something to measure against, the, the only data points you have is if people say they like it or if you personally go, oh, I really liked how that color choice and the way it looked and or the way I kind of delivered that. I felt like I spoke a lot more confidently and pronounced words better. If you don't have a measure, then you've got nothing to kind of compare yourself against. So mm. what's, uh, what's your next one, Raph? Well, actually, a, a relatively neat segue because if there's an absence of measuring results and knowing what works and what doesn't, there starts to be a tendency of starting to chase a silver bullet. So this is something I see quite a lot in, and there's a lot of posts and marketing out there that, hey, this new concept, it's going to be essentially the silver bullet that solves all your L&D problems. And, you know, this goes for technical stuff. So we're talking about, I mean, once e-learning was a silver bullet and now it's kind of starting to become the villain in, in learning. And then it goes the other way. It goes through the hype cycle and then you see these articles saying, this thing is dead. Yeah. E-learning is dead. Gamification is dead. Instructional design is dead. Mm. Um, and then usually it's followed up by long live. The replacement. Yes. So e-learning is dead. Long live micro learning or long live video. Instructional design is dead. Long live learning experience design. Yeah. And it's it, it, and let's it's, let's throw something out. And, yep. and we and we seem to not learn, I guess, as a industry because it follows the same cycle of here's a hype, here's a silver bullet, not quite understanding it, focusing on the superficial and and essentially, you know, internally going, well, this is the latest trend, so it has to work implementing it to a superficial level and then seeing that initially you'll probably get a spike in engagement because it's something new. So for things like gamification or let's say VR, the first time a portion of your demographic engages with it, they're going to think, oh, this is cool. Um, and you'll probably get people saying, oh, that training was great. And you might, you might get a bit more retention purely because they've had a more positive experience. But the second, third time, that return is going to diminish further and further because now it's starting to go back to, is this actually an effective use of a concept to deliver learning? Um, and, and that yeah. so often is the thing that falls away. Like if we had to say, hey, something's dead, I would, I would say good learning design seems to be dead because everything seems to start with, oh, this is a later silver bullet. It's not, it's not going to work for everything. All these concepts are fantastic yeah. in their right course, but not for everything and it's you know it's just, it's this this happens outside of our our field oh, yeah. weight loss is a, is a really good example yep. you know everyone's looking for that silver bullet and there's a new type of fad diet that comes out all the time mm -hmm. uh it's 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 really it's it's not an exciting marketing message to hear that sleeping well eating right exercising uh you know really good for weight loss, yeah. avoiding alcohol, things like that. It's it's much easier to say oh, only eat these types of foods or stay away from these things or take this supplement or do this mm -hmm. thing. This one exercise for seven minutes a week will change your life. It's really, really appealing. And we see this a lot with, you know, tech technology mm -hmm. being the solution. Yep. Um, or or even like a you know, a course library. Oh, people are just not we need to develop a culture of learning, so we need a couple of thousand courses. Yeah. You know, that's not gonna create a culture of learning. It's like a um, lot of silver boards. Yeah, a lot of people wanting bullets after all that, I think. Um, but it's 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 frustrating because what we really really need to understand is that there's all these tools available to us, and they're all good at certain things. Mm -hmm. You know, e-learning still has a place, but 
it's not great for everything, and that's yeah. a problem. Gamification does have a place in certain applications, but we've tried to put it on everything and everyone got frustrated. So everyone then said it doesn't work. Mm. And the same thing will happen with micro learning. We'll probably go to three hour courses in five years time. It'll all be about giant learning. And we'll be going through three hour courses because micro learning is dead. Long live giant learning. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, you know, it keeps going round and round. And I think we, we need to start looking at things at a deeper level and really understanding it to the point of e-learning. So when people say e-learning's dead, um, when I l get them to describe what they mean by e-learning, they're basically, you know, glorified PowerPoints. Now, I I'm sorry, but e-learning is not a glorified PowerPoint because that PowerPoint was designed as a presentation tool and hopefully it was designed well, but it worked in the context of having a presenter. And that was essentially the delivery method. And if you just take that information, slap some back and next buttons and pop it on your LMS, you've digitized the PowerPoint so it works on your LMS. You haven't created e-learning. And I think this kind of idea around silver bullet, well, this idea around kind of things being dead, it just perpetuates this silver bullet thinking too. Mm. Because I've had a lot of conversations where I'll turn up and you know the first thing someone will say is, whatever you do, don't mention gamification, you know, that sucks. We all know it sucks. Uh, we're all about 70, 20, 10. Mm. This is what we're all about. You know, it kind of, it, it just keeps perpetuating this kind of jumping to the next kind of shiny object. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, what's, what's uh, your next one, Matt? Let me, let me complain about stopping complaining. <laughs> uh, I, I think, I think we need yeah. to stop complaining about not having a seat at the table. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we need to do something about it. And, and I've been a, a bit, vocal about this in the past as well. But uh, I think you do get the respect you deserve mm -hmm. ultimately. And I, I don't think that you can't complain about not having a seat at the table if you're not actively doing things to get that seat. And uh, This is, this is kind of going that, from that order taker to advisor sort of shift, yeah? It's, it's in a couple of different ways, yeah. So I guess when people talk about the seat at the table, they're talking about the seat at the boardroom table mm -hmm. or part, you know, part of those big decision-making meetings, really having a sense of influence within the organization, the CEO really seeing the importance of learning or HR and, and really valuing their input and making decisions based on, you know, uh, what they're saying as well. Um, but then also too, yeah, like you're saying, going from kind of, uh, you know, those order takers, yep, what content do you need? We'll make it in whatever way you want to doing a bit more performance analysis and things like that. I think it's all very much related and it's related to what I was saying before about expertise. I think uh, for me personally, the, the best learning and development managers I've ever uh, worked with and interacted with uh, have been the ones that really understand their business, where yes. I could sit down with them and say, what does this area of the business do? How does, how does your business actually generate revenue? What are the different revenue streams of your, your business? What's the marketing strategy of your business? Those learning and development managers are pretty rare, to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. They really, really get the business and they have a good business mind. And I get that some people, I'm to be honest, I'm probably one of them, right, kind of super excited. We don't want to go off and get an MBA. We don't want to, you know, really get into kind of the business stuff. Some of the corporate stuff just really kind of makes our eyes roll and <laughs> um, we kind of tune out a little bit. But you need to understand. You need to understand how business works and how your business works as well. You're not going to get the respect until you do that. Mm -hmm. And then you're also not going to get the respect unless you are trying to find out what the problem is. If someone is coming to you and saying, we need training on this, and you're saying yes, 
well, <laughs> yes. they're just going to treat you like the order taker because that's what you're doing. Yeah, you're, you're, you're basically you are... leaving the, I guess, the expertise up to them to identify when training's mm-hmm. needed and what that training looks like. Absolutely. And so if you can take a, take a step back, and I realize it's hard. I mean, we, we face, both of us face these challenges every day. Mm-hmm. It takes a lot of bravery as well, but asking the questions to, to really find out, like, what is the source of this problem? Where, what is the nature of this request? Why are you coming to me and thinking that training's the answer? What are we trying to solve here? You're starting to be seen as more of a strategic advisor. Yes. And you're starting to be seen as, you know, a, a part of the business that can really, really help you improve performance, can really help you, prefer, uh, you know, improve mm-hmm. uh, the, the morale of staff, their skill set, and create some more development opportunities and not just be that kind of content center Mm. or that department that sends you those annoying emails saying you haven't completed your mandatory training. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also part of that is is, um, kind of going to lead me into my next point, which is use data, not opinions and preferences to guide your approach. Mm. But also touching on that in in terms of just being really careful of the language you even use. Um, Just the other day, I was watching a video um, about how to create interactive video. And it was like a, a video going through the process and the steps of achieving um, something that was you know, going to be an interactive video, which is quite an exciting format. And there was this pivotal moment where it was like, so we started and we did this and we were storyboarding. And then we thought it'd be really cool to use video. And for me, if that's the language you use with your client internal or external, then they think that's the driver. Oh, okay. So we just have to think of what's really cool and then just use it. So all of a sudden you'll be told, oh, we need this training and it'd be really great if it was video-based or hey, it'd be really great if it was micro-learning because the way we identify if it should be used is preferential opinion or hey, it'd be really cool. And Mm -hmm. the idea is you really should be using, going all the way back to understanding the problem and then using data to influence what's the best approach to achieve a particular outcome. Um, And that data is both in the design phase, so understanding what the problem is and designing the solution through the learning uh, event itself and through the learning journey itself. So every time, let's say you're creating a piece of e-learning, every time the user makes a decision or puts an input, grabbing that piece of information and using it to its full potential if someone gets a question wrong, saying that's incorrect, try again, is not using that data to its full potential. Taking them down a pathway that acknowledges that gap, explains that gap, fills that gap and allows them to demonstrate if they've understood it, that's using the data in a more meaningful way. Very often we hear you know, a lot around preference, like oh, I prefer using video to this. And we also ask learners' preferences. So this is smile sheets pretty much personified in a face-to-face session. All the questions are like, did you find the presenter was good? Did you like the content? So, I mean, that's nice to know, but where's the question of down the track measuring performance? Hey, did this training actually work to deliver an outcome? And then understanding if, okay, well, if that training didn't work, why didn't it work? So being able to, take that data and see how do we improve these topics over here nailed them great that side of things is really on point we've got a few gaps over here we need to change things over here rather than kind of you know looking at the whole solution and going up oh, we didn't quite hit our success factors the whole solution goes out we need a whole new one yeah and i think that point and really i think 
pretty much everything we're going to talk about in this episode uh, really is going to help generate more respect as well. Yes. You know, if you are using data, absolutely. You're going to be like the rest of the business or, you know, you're going to be ahead of the rest of the business too. Another one um, that might seem a little bit funny, uh, I'm going to throw out there. This is a little bit of a um, something <laughs> controversial. drum on about a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Le- learning structural design. And this is when everyone kind of turns off. Um, <laughs> but what I mean by that is learn real instructional design. Instructional design is not just writing some training material. Mm-hmm. Um, that that that's that's writing. Learn instructional design and learn every single step of the process, and that includes working out what the business problem is. Mm-hmm. That includes determining if training is the answer. That includes then working out what type or what types of training or learning intervention or resource material needs to be developed. Mm. That involves figuring out what what is the kind of the current state and the desired future state. That involves, you know, doing a training needs analysis, but also analyzing the audience. That also includes looking at what are the potential accessibility needs and what are, you know, some of the, the maybe the language barriers or what's the demographic of the audience as well. And then that that includes um putting together the best solution and executing that solution. And I think all the articles that say instructional design is dead and long live ex- learning experience design, they're really talking about the same thing. Yep. I think great instructional designers from you know, 20, 30 years ago uh, were still creating great learning experiences. Mm-hmm. They just had a very systemized, great process for it. And if you look back to you know, the history of instructional design and what it previously used to be called instructional systems design, thinking about what are the systems that you can put in place to teach this person how to do this new thing or this new bit of information and everything that's combined, including the environment. I think that's really, really key. And it comes, once again, you know, back to kind of becoming an expert at it. You can't just stop at learning how to write a, a piece of material that can be easily understood. It's it's more beyond that. Exactly. And, and I like how you've broken apart that instructional design is an umbrella over having skill sets in writing, having skill sets in UX, as far as I'm concerned, having skill sets in uh, analyzing problems and, and problem solving, all that sort of thing. All that falls under that umbrella. And, and I think if you are an instructional designer, again, it's knowing where your strengths are, where your limitations are. So I, I've known in the past people who were great at instructional design but their writing wasn't brilliant and like you know liked a bit of personality and because they were good instructional designers what they did is they had a peer in the company and they went this person's really actually fantastic at emotive writing and that and they worked with them a lot to peer review and develop that skill set in themselves connecting with the right expert understanding the personal gap and developing all these skills that make up what it is to be an instructional designer. I think over the years I've interviewed hundreds um, and hundreds of instructional designers and very often the majority of people when you ask about instructional design tools um, or methodologies, you know, tools that will be, oh, yeah, I can use Storyline, I can use (laughs) Captivate. Uh, or are you talking about a methodology? Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I use Addy. Mm. You know, it's it's it is it is superficial. It's and- yeah. It's really funny, and and especially now to the point you made, there seems to be a current trend of you know instructional designers now becoming learning experience designers. I think it's a really great thing to if someone's 
if you've seen someone change their title, ask them what the difference is. And this is my personal opinion on it, is the people that perhaps aren't brilliant at what they did will tell you about all the differences between instructional design and learning experience design. Um, the people who are really good will probably go, look, I'm doing the same thing, um, but the market's changing and now this is the latest buzz title and I just want to keep up with the market. So organizations aren't, oh, well, I'm just an instructional designer, so I'm last generation of this skill. It's the same thing. It's got a different label on it, um, but ultimately it's the same principles of good learning design and all that comes with it that fall into this role. Uh, it's just a rebrand of a role, I guess. It's... Yeah, I mean, giving someone a new job title doesn't change their skill set. Yes, uh, maybe it, it helps change their mindset and their perspective a bit, and so that's the positive to it. But I heard someone at a conference uh, a couple of years ago say, "I don't hire instructional designers; I only hire learning experience designers, or I change their role to learning experience designer." Because as soon as you change their role from instructional designer to learning experience designer, you don't get a next button anymore. <laughs> and Dreaded that, next I mean, button. It's very, very topic, <laughs> very, very topical related to our uh, podcast title. But I don't understand that. What, what does that mean? Hmm. So they they change the next button to an arrow or or something. Are they? How, how does that work? How do they suddenly get the skills to create something that's very interactive and scenario based, where you are clicking on, you know, or selecting options to kind of progress and moving through it like a video game versus just clicking a next button. Mm. I, I don't think that is really logical thinking and I haven't really seen any evidence of it. I'm not seeing the people who have rebranded themselves as learning experience designers sharing anything that's a better quality instructionally or, or more effective than anything they've done in the past either. Mm. And that actually, um, this topic around, you know, learning instructional design and again, segues into my next point, which is know when training is not the answer. And this touches on a few points we made along here, but someone who is really good at instructional design will be able to tell the business when training is not the answer and what type of training is and isn't appropriate and what types of methods are and aren't appropriate from a analytical perspective, not a preferential perspective. So, you know, you, you get some instructional designers go, oh, I love micro learning. And, you know, I, I actually had someone uh, at one point say to me that they recommend micro learning over e-learning 100% of the time. And that tells me that they're not particularly good at instructional design or understanding the learning space because they're blanket before they understand the need, making these blanket statements. And the business, they're looking to that person as a advisor and they're going, okay, well, this person's an advisor in the learning space. Whew, that means everything's micro learning from here. And again, if you go back with to every problem and go, yep, we can do training for that, then the business is going to be conditioned to that. It's like, oh, okay, great. So any problem we have is just give it to the L&D team and they'll create some training and hopefully magic will happen. So being able to say no. Well, I, I get I, well, I, I get that it's hard to say no. Mm. I mean, we have uh, been in this position a lot ourselves and we have lost out on financially yep. or you know, uh, working with people around this by saying no because someone's looking for a quick fix and just wants a bit of training rolled out or you know a session made or something like that. But you need to, you, otherwise you're not going to get the respect we talked about, you're not going to further your expertise and you're not going to be able to get any decent results. Mm. And it's, it, I, I, I do honestly believe it is your, your ethical duty yes. 
to do the best possible thing for your internal your your client, be it an internal client or an external client, and and for your audience as well. Mm. There's so much useless training out there because not just because it's designed badly, it might be designed really really well, but because it shouldn't exist in the first place. Yep. Because it's it's not a training problem and a really great question um, that that I use. It's kind of adapted. Uh, from something um, from from Mega is uh, if if this person could do this for a million dollars, would they be able to do it? And if you can answer that question, it it means that that person it's just a motivation problem. Mm-hmm. That person isn't lacking the skills or the resources to be able to do that. If I say you know could this person do it for if you offered them a million dollars to do it, and and the answer is no, they couldn't. You know, they really want a million dollars, but they just can't do it because they don't have the skill mm-hmm. to be able to do it. Then, absolutely, you need to do some sort of training. You need to develop them. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason I've adapted that is the original question is if someone's life depended mm-hmm. on it. I find that quite confronting mm-hmm. to clients or kind of SMEs. Yep. Um, but we need to be asking those sort of questions. We need to be pushing back. And yeah, it, it you do. If you are a third party, if you are a vendor, quote unquote. And you are pushing back and saying, I don't think training is the answer. Yeah, you are literally talking yourself out of work. You are actually costing yourself money. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have definitely experienced that in, in previous uh, incarnations. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, but I think you have to do it. And when there is a legitimate training need, that means that you will be able to develop something that is worthwhile. Yes. Mm. And that's what it's all about. Ultimately, you know, having that awareness that, what you do is going to either have a positive or a negative impact on someone's day. Mm. Um, and if it and if it doesn't make someone better, but it takes up 10, 5, an hour of their time, that's negative in my opinion. Yes. Yeah. You don't get time yeah. back. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty, pretty good list. And I yeah. think um, I would love some feedback on this. So check the show notes for our personal and uh, the podcast mm-hmm. uh, social media accounts yep. and get in touch with them. Um, we are looking for a lot of feedback because we want to get better at this. Absolutely. This is, uh, I think, the third or the fourth take that we've done on this. We've had some technical issues today. So apologies if we kind of rambled a bit or stumbled over words. We're a little bit exhausted mm-hmm. now. Um but really want to hear feedback, but also questions. If you disagree with anything we've said or want clarification on any of the episodes that we have, or you just have a genuine question for us, we're, we're looking to do some Q&A episodes later on down the track. So if you've made it this far, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for your insights, Raf. It's been fantastic. Loved it. Great time. See you later. Cheers. Bye. Click next to continue.